You're listening to the Real Estate CPA Podcast, your source for all things real estate accounting and tax. Here we reveal our secrets that can save you thousands in taxes, streamline your accounting process, and help grow your business. Stay tuned to hear insightful interviews with industry experts, successful real estate investors, and current clients on what strategies they use to grow their business and how they steer clear of Uncle Sam. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the next series on the Real Estate CPA Podcast. We're going to be discussing exit strategies. As you know, one of the biggest taxable events you're going to have in real estate is when you exit your properties. So we're going to go through some tax-efficient exit strategies. In this first episode, we're going to be covering tax loss harvesting and how to use passive losses to offset capital gains on the sale of your real estate assets or your rental assets, to be specific. And, and I guess before we even start jumping into that, Tom, why would somebody even care about exit strategies? Why couldn't I just sell my real estate and just, you know, whatever the gain is, I pay taxes on it and call it a day? Yeah, I mean, sure, you could you could do that. Uh, capital gains tax rates are around 15% and 20% if you make over around $501,000 per year. And on top of that, you have the net investment income tax of 3.8%. So you're paying somewhere between 18.8% and 23.8% in taxes, you know, per dollar in taxes when you sell your rental real estate. And instead, if you use some of these strategies, what you could do is avoid paying those taxes, take your money back today and reinvest it and earn a rate of return on money you would otherwise pay to the government. Uh, and it, as we'll discuss in some of these strategies, the time value of money can be very lucrative. Like for example, say you use one of these exit strategies and you're able to save $100,000 in taxes that $100,000 reinvested at an 8% return over 10 years is going to return you around $215,000. So that's oh, can you go over that again? I think that that's the, that's the critical piece there. So say that again. Yeah. So it's all about the time value of money, right? So uh, basically a dollar today is worth more than a dollar tomorrow. And the reason for that is because you could theoretically reinvest that money or actually go and reinvest that money and earn a rate of return. And in this example, let's just say you have $100,000 in capital gains tax that you would have to pay as a result of selling a highly appreciated asset such as real estate. You can defer or eliminate that tax and you could take the $100,000 back in your pocket and you can go reinvest it. And if just as an example, an 8% return, which is generally very achievable in real estate, even in this market we're in today, an 8% return over a 10-year period compounded is going to give you uh, $215,000. So mm. that's $115,000 that you didn't have before that you wouldn't have if you would just pay the government and pay their taxes. And um uh, one of the best things about real estate is you have all these different strategies that you can use to minimize or eliminate taxes on the sale of your assets, which isn't always there in other asset classes or businesses that you may be investing in. So that's what makes real estate such a lucrative investment. And uh, being that the exit is where you're probably going to recognize the biggest gains or the biggest taxable events for your real estate. That's why you want to pay attention to what exit strategies are available to you. Mm -hmm. So you can decide, you know, how you can go about minimizing your taxes on that exit again. So you take advantage of the time value of money. Right. So the, the whole pre-frame to this entire series is that the time value of money theory says that a dollar today is worth more than a dollar tomorrow. And, and that makes sense if you think about inflation and the cost of goods. So a gallon of milk today might cost $3 
the gallon of milk next year might cost $3.03. So if I have the same $3 in my bank account and I don't do anything with it and it just sits in my bank account, well, today it can buy that gallon of milk, right? But a year from now, I have that same $3 and now the milk costs $3.03. And now I cannot buy that milk. So the time value of money theory is all about saying that you should optimize every dollar that you have today because you lose your purchasing power over time due to inflation. And one way to combat that loss of purchasing power is to reinvest the capital. And so if you are going to be selling your rental real estate or selling any sort of asset at a large gain, the idea is, can I avoid tax? Can I avoid paying tax in today's dollars, right? I want to pay tax in future dollars that have been chipped away at with inflation. So I don't want to pay tax today. I want to pay tax at some later point because I want to take those tax savings that I otherwise would have paid today and I want to reinvest them. I want to grow that tax bill, that eventual tax bill. I want to reinvest it. I want to grow it so that I can earn money. People do this with cost segregation studies, right? This is a great example, cost segregation studies. So I buy a new property, a million dollars, and I get a cost segregation study done and I get a $250,000 tax loss thanks to bonus depreciation and all that stuff. That $250,000 tax loss might save me $70,000 in taxes. So by buying this million dollar property, by getting the cost segregation study done, today I pay $70,000 less in taxes, which just means that I have $70,000 to reinvest. Now I'll have to pay that $70,000 back at some point because there's depreciation recapture and, and all that. But the point is, is that today I have $70,000 to reinvest. So I reinvest that $70,000. I let it build for five to seven years. We sell the asset uh, seven years later, but I've earned a 12% return and I've doubled that $75,000. Now I have $150,000 that has been created from this seventy-five dollars or $70,000 in tax savings. And now I go pay the $70,000 in tax when I sell seven years later. But now I've, I'm left with an additional $70,000, $75,000. So the whole point is to keep money in your pocket, reinvest it, knowing at some point that I'll have to pay it back. You know, I, I think that there's, there's not a whole lot of strategies out there that allow you to actually eliminate tax, right? So, so we're trying to just kick the can down the road for the most part. We're going to talk about some elimination strategies, but we're going to kick the can down the road so that we can let that tax savings accrue, so we can let it build, so we can let that return on investment really sink in there for us. And five, 10, 20 years later, we're sitting on a lot of capital thanks to these tax deferral strategies. Absolutely. Absolutely. All right. So with that all in mind, uh, I think we should maybe just start diving into some of these strategies, start uh, uncovering you know, what you can do. And the first one is something that if you invest in the stock market, you're familiar with tax loss harvesting. And that's just the principle that capital gains can be offset by capital losses. So if you have a capital gain from the sale of real estate or any capital asset like a stock, you can just take capital losses and offset it. The challenge with this strategy is that you actually have to sell assets at a loss or have a capital loss to offset. And usually you don't want to find yourself in that position. So this strategy is typically used if you have an asset that is seriously not gonna recover in value. Maybe you made a bad investment in real estate, 
Maybe you made a bad stock investment or another financial asset that, you know, is now underwater is below the price you originally bought it for. And it's unlikely to return to its original value or more. So you decide, you know what, it's time for me to cut my losses and I'm going to go ahead and sell this asset at a loss and you're going to have a capital loss. And the way capital losses work is they're going to offset capital gains. If you don't have capital gains to offset in the year that you sell that asset, then you're going to be able to take up to $3,000 of that capital loss against your ordinary income. The rest is going to carry over to the next year and you know continue from there. So basically, the way this strategy works is that you sell your assets that are in a loss position, you recognize that capital loss, and then you use it to offset a capital gain, whether it be in that year or in a future year. So I guess what I'm trying to say is to use this strategy of take a look at your assets and say, if I have assets in a loss, will they recover? If the answer is no, they're unlikely. The probability of them recovering is extremely low. Then you go ahead and sell those, and then you can use those to offset the capital gain at some point in the future. Yeah, and and so another part of the tax loss harvesting strategy is, and this might be relevant for anybody that uh, that sold during the April, I think it was April dip in 2020 with COVID coming out and stocks tanking and everything. If you hold a stock, so you've got a position in some company, you own their stock and you're bullish long-term, but in the short term, in the last 12 months, the stock has taken a dip. So it's dived, but you're still bullish long-term. You believe in the vision, you believe in the company, you believe that this is the new thing, you know, whatever that is. If you are in a lost position by the end of the year, you can sell the stock and immediately rebuy it. And that will create a tax loss that you can then utilize to offset tax gain from any other capital asset that you've sold at a positive gain. Or like Tom said, you can use $3,000 of that tax loss and the remainder will carry forward to be utilized at some point. So the point is, is that if I put $100,000 in to this stock, and, and it's decreased in value. And now it's December and I'm looking for some tax strategies. One thing that I can do if I'm sitting on now, let's say I've got a $20,000 a loss that I haven't actually recognized. Well, I'm going to go recognize that loss. I'm going to sell the stock. I'm going to get a $20,000 loss, but then I'm going to immediately rebuy the stock if I'm bullish long-term, right? So now I've just created a $20,000 loss that I can claim or I could sell my other stock that's winning. I could sell $20,000 worth of that at a gain to offset the loss that I just created. So that that is also something you're, you're able to do. Now, if you're using like those robo-advisors, uh, there's a few of those online, or if you have a financial advisor, most likely they're doing this for you. So a lot of this can be automated depending on who, what brokerage you use, but most likely they're doing these types of things for you as you're investing along the way. Yeah. And I'm going to say tax loss harvesting isn't really a huge strategy we see people often use in the real estate space. Um, it's it's one of those things you want to be aware of to have in your tool belt, just something to consider when you're selling properties. If you're able to utilize it, great. If not, it's not something you're necessarily going to plan for. I'm not going to plan to have a capital loss. It's, uh, it's something that it, if it happens to you, it happens and you can lock it in. And I guess I should also add one caveat that with what I just talked about, liquidating and then rebuying, uh, you do have to be careful of wash sales. 
So you do have to be aware of that wash sale rule. And that is when you sell a security and then rebuy it within 30 days, that loss, you actually won't be able to recognize. So you do have to space it out. You, have to, you do have to time it, um, but you can, you can execute it if you time it effectively. For sure. For sure. So definitely watch out for that. But, you know, a strategy we see more often is uh, used, you know, a lot in real estate is going to be using passive losses to offset your capital gains on the sale of your rental real estate or even syndicates investments you have in syndicates or other passive activities. But for our purposes today, we're going to consider it real estate, right? So the way this works is when you buy a property, you're going to have a depreciation expense. Residential properties depreciated over 27 and a half years. Commercial properties depreciate over 39 years. As we'll talk about in many other episodes, you can use a cost segregation study to accelerate the depreciation on certain components. Specifically, with 100% bonus depreciation, you could depreciate the five-year property, which is tangible personal property, things like appliances, cabinets, items of that nature. The land improvements, uh, which are 15-year property, those things are things like sidewalks, landscaping, pools, things of that nature. Uh, those can both be depreciated 100% in the first year you place that asset into service. And again, you're going to use a cost segregation study generally to identify those. And that's going to create in the year you acquire that asset, that's most likely when you combine that increased depreciation expense with your overall operating expenses, things like property management fees, repairs, maintenance, property taxes, utilities, that's all going to combine. You're usually going to have a loss, a sizable loss. And at that point, that's going to be called a current passive loss. And that can offset any current passive income you have, any net passive income or gains from passive activities. So that's one thing to monitor. You can always go ahead and buy a property in the same year you sell another property to create current passive losses. Um, you can also use suspended passive losses to offset capital gains. Suspended passive losses are simply current losses from prior years that you weren't able to utilize because passive losses can only offset passive income. So what happens is they will carry forward. So if you don't use them, they will carry forward indefinitely. And you could always find these suspended passive losses on Form 8582 of your tax return. And uh, again, that's something that you're going to want to look at uh, in a year you sell an asset to see, do I have suspended passive losses? How many spend, how much, what's the amount of the suspended passive losses I have? And to what extent can it help me offset this gain? Yeah. And if you want a little bit more information about Form 8582, I actually did a whole video on it on the Tax Smart Real Estate Investors YouTube channel that we have. So check that out. Uh, we can post a link in the description of the show notes here. It's episode 49 of the Tax Smart Daily. And if you haven't been watching the Tax Smart Daily, you totally should because every single day I'm putting out really awesome content and uh, people are raving about it and you're missing out if you haven't seen it. So go check that out. That's the Tax Smart Real Estate Investors YouTube channel. Uh, but it's episode 49 of the Tax Smart Daily. And I basically pull up a form 8582 and I walk you through it. So I show you exactly where to go to see if you have suspended passive losses that you're carrying forward. And it's really important to understand, one, you, everybody should be doing this. Every single person listening to this podcast, like if you take one thing away from all of our podcast episodes, I appreciate all of everybody's comments about, oh, you guys are great. Like you're saving me so much money in taxes and all these cool things we're doing, all that stuff. That's great. But the one thing that I want every single listener to take away from our podcast is what I'm about to say. You need to know what your suspended passive losses are 
that you're carrying forward every single year. You need to track it every single year because sometimes your CPA messes up. Sometimes your CPA makes mistakes. Sometimes when you switch CPAs, the new CPA forgets to go and look at Form 8582 and carry forward your losses. We have seen $400,000 losses just vanish, vanish. That costs that person at least $120,000 in taxes. So make sure that you are looking at this on an ongoing basis. Every single year, you should know what your suspended passive losses are that you're carrying forward. Not only will it help you with exit strategies, because if you've got a $400,000 suspended passive loss, you don't have to do a 1031 exchange, right? I mean, we love 1031 exchanges, but let's not do it if we don't have to do it. So just make sure that you go to form 8582. You're going to look at worksheet six. It's always attached to form 8582, column B, unallowed losses, whatever that total is, that's the unallowed losses that you're carrying forward year to year. And you need to know what that is every single year. And if you want to walk through a form 8582, again, go to the Tax Smart Real Estate Investors YouTube channel, check out the Tax Smart Daily episode 49, and you'll get that walkthrough. Now, what Tom was saying, um, I just want to kind of echo because there's a lot of confusion. And we've got our big Tax Smart Investors Facebook group. We've got almost 3,000 investors in that group. And everybody asks, not everybody, but a lot of people ask all the time, it seems like, at least once or twice a week, Hey, my CPA says that my rental losses or my syndication losses from this LP investment cannot offset the passive income that I have from these other things that I'm doing. And if you truly have passive income from your other deals, then your syndication losses, your, your passive losses can offset that income. And where would you figure that out? Well, you would go to form 8582. And you would look at line four and line four basically says, add it all up, Com combine all of them, all of your passive activities, positive, negative, add them all up. If you sell a passive activity at a gain, you report that on form 4797. But what do the form 4797 instructions say? They say, hey, if this is a passive activity, you also need to report the gain on form 8582. So really, you need to know form 8582. That's the number one form that you need to know. Even this is probably even more important than your schedule E, honestly. Form 8582, that's where all the netting happens. And so when your CPA or when your tax advisor says, Yeah, I don't think that your rental losses can offset your surgical center passive income, you get to go, well, wait a second. Form 8582 says that it can. Actually, form 8582 makes it extremely clear that it can. Can you draft up a pro forma tax return for me? so that we can test this theory that these losses don't offset because that surgical center income is going to flow in to form 8582. And line four on form 8582 says net all of your passive activity income and losses together. And we're going to report the net. So it's aggregating everything. And what does that have to do with exit strategies? Well, if I sell a rental property at a gain, or if I sell a passive activity at a gain, maybe I invested in a hair salon. And I put $100,000 in and I'm getting $10,000 annually. I'm not involved in management decisions. I'm not participating. I'm just purely passive. I just put some money in to help them expand. And now I want to sell that stake, right? So, so the $10,000 that I've been receiving every single year, that's passive income. I've been offsetting that passive income with my rental losses. And now I want to sell that stake in the surgical center and I can sell it for 150 k So I have a $50,000 gain. Well, it's a passive activity gain. It's going to show up on form 8582. So what can I do? I can also go and invest in a syndication and I can create a loss from that syndication investment because the syndication is going to do a cost segregation study. 
uh, they're going to pass back a passive activity loss. And now that passive activity loss can offset the gain on sale for my hair salon investment. So really important to understand that passive activity income offsets passive activity losses, and you can defer all day long if you know that. Um, and and you're, you know, if you think about it, like my hair salon example, it's essentially a 1031 exchange, right? Just without doing a 1031 exchange. I mean, I'm selling one at a gain, but I'm also making this investment over here. So, so on the left hand, I'm selling at a gain. On the right hand, I'm making this investment that's going to generate a loss. Well, what does a loss do? A loss reduces my basis, right? If I put $100,000 into an investment and then I'm passing $80,000 loss, well, now my basis is $20,000. So if they sell at $100,000, I've got an $80,000 gain because I took the loss, right? Since I took the loss, my basis decreases. Well, what does a 1031 exchange do? A 1031 exchange says, we're going to roll forward your gain. So your basis is 20. The fair market value is 100. We're just going to roll that forward into the next asset. So the next asset, guess what? The fair market value is 100. The basis is 20. I sell that asset at some future point. I have an $80,000 gain. So we're essentially recreating a 1031 exchange by utilizing section 469, the passive activity code section, correctly and efficiently and, and timing things. So whenever you're selling a passive activity, uh, whether or not it's real estate, you can essentially accomplish a 1031 exchange without doing a 1031 exchange, as long as you on the back end are investing in assets that are going to produce tax losses for you. And, and we have some examples of those tax losses too, I think, or, or of what, what activities create those tax losses. Yeah. So, so what activities create these tax losses? Well, rental real estate, first and foremost, if you're not a real estate professional, which is outside the scope of this episode for today, but if you're not a real estate professional, rental real estate is considered passive. They're considered passive by default. So that means that any losses you generate from your rental real estate will be passive. Now, there's other activities that could be passive as well, as Brandon was saying. And that's usually when you invest in other businesses that you're not materially participating in as a limited partner. So it could be that hair salon. It could be the local pizzeria. It could be the local fitness franchise that they're looking to expand to five new locations. You just put some money and you never, you never do anything. They do all the work and you simply are the investor. So it's pretty much any business where you're investing as a limited partner um, and you're not involved. You're not making any management decisions. You're the silent partner, quote unquote, or you're simply the money partner, just putting the money in. Those are going to be passive activities. They could also have businesses that you own, a hundred percent of that you either built in the past under certain rules. Okay. Or that you just bought that you just don't participate in. Those can also be considered passive activities. Like for example, you can go buy a fitness center, never touch it. And if you have operators in it, you have people, uh, managers doing that, running that business for you, that could potentially be a passive activity and any losses from that five-year property, all those fitness equipment that could potentially generate a lot of losses for you. Same thing with laundromats, same things with restaurants. There's a lot of different businesses that you could use this strategy on. Now, I think the biggest problem most CPAs have is actually be willing to take the stance that it's passive. I think that's because they have a lack of understanding of Section 469 and the material participation rules. I see this all the time. I see this all the time. Uh, we have clients or prospective clients that come to us and say, well, my CPA said that, you know, this hair salon isn't a passive activity. And that's because usually they don't understand how the, the material participation rules work. If you're not meeting one of the material participation tests, if you're falling underneath those thresholds, 
then it's going to be a passive activity. And uh, on a business, it's a little bit different than real estate. Remember, rental real estate, unless you're a real estate professional, is always going to be passive by default. That says it right there in the task code. Uh, very, very plain and simple. Everybody knows that. It's very easy and clean for CPAs to understand. But when you get into businesses, businesses don't have that high bar of being a real estate professional to make it passive or non-passive. You simply have to look at the seven material participation tests and make a determination. Do you meet one of those criteria, one of those tests. And if you do, then it's an active activity. If you don't, then it's a passive activity. But because that high bar of, of the real estate professional isn't there, it's a little bit more, I don't want to say gray, it's a little bit harder to determine, a little bit harder to substantiate, which is why I think a lot of CPAs will err on the side of caution on their end uh, and say that it is active because the IRS, frankly, in mo most cases, isn't going to come and beat down your door if you're going to pay them more taxes. So uh, it's just something to keep in mind that these other activities do exist for you. You just have to find a CPA who can recognize where those opportunities do exist. Right, you know, one of the biggest problems we have in the CPA industry is people, the CPAs are too busy preparing tax returns to ever really provide any planning on how their clients can minimize their taxes, which is often costing their clients a lot of money. And Tom and I have worked with over a thousand real estate investors on tax planning over the past six years. We've saved them millions of dollars in taxes. And the reality is, is that tax planning, especially one-on-one -on -one, is really expensive. It's not in the budget for all real estate investors, but real estate investors are near and dear to Tom and I's heart. We're real estate investors. Our parents are real estate investors. We want to help every single real estate investor out there. So we created taxsmartinvestors.com. There's three subscription tiers. You can get a content subscription tier that gives you access to gated content. And we write it in a way that you can digest it, but there's also citations that you can go to your own tax preparer and say, wait a second, this is how it's actually supposed to be. And here's the citation. On that content subscription, you also get access to a weekly tax strategy newsletter. On top of that, we also have a subscription that gives you access to our insiders Facebook group, which just allows closer access to Tom and I and our team of CPAs. You can schedule paid calls with us and you can get access to our monthly workshops through that subscription tier. And those monthly workshops, we're doing tax planning, financial planning, we're going over accounting strategies and how to automate your systems. And then we have a, a top tier. And that top tier, that's really where you get access to us and our team of experienced real estate tax planners. And you could do that through two calls. Where we'll take a look at your situation and determine what strategies you can use to minimize your taxes based on where you are, where you're looking to go. In addition to that, what a lot of our clients have loved over the years is the ability to send emails where you could send your question and we'll get back to you with an answer within 48 hours. And you should definitely check that out if you're sending questions to your CPA and they're taking weeks to get back to you, if they ever get back to you, or they're not providing with any planning, we can take a look at your situation and determine what can be done to help you save on taxes. And two, two other ones that I can't remember if you actually mentioned them or not. So if you did mention them, I apologize. We're just going to mention them again. But two additional ones that our clients are often talking about investing in or are investing in are ATM machine syndicates and self-storage syndicates. So ATM machines and self-storage, like those, those have been popping up for various reasons and, and gaining a lot of popularity. The ATM machine is, is actually really interesting. Uh, you know, a ATM machines can be, if you purchase an ATM for like $8,000, you can 100% bonus depreciate the full $8,000 machine. So in the first year, it gives you a, a pretty sizable loss. So investing in ATM machine syndicates can give you a pretty sizable loss as well. But we've seen some sponsors of ATM machine syndicates and self-storage syndicates 
also not understand the passive activity rules, which Tom was just kind of talking about. You know, they the, these sponsors will tell their investors, yeah, yeah, you'll be able to use the losses. The losses are business losses. And it's like, well, it doesn't matter if the losses are business losses or not. What matters is what what bucket of income are these are these losses in? Are these in the passive bucket or are they, are they in the non-passive bucket? And that is determined on an individual level. It's not going to be determined at the partnership level. So the sponsor themselves, they may have non-passive business losses coming from this syndicate because they are the ones that are driving the deal. They're the one involved in the day-to-day. But if you put a hundred thousand into these and you don't do anything, then you're passive. You're not materially participating. So any loss kicked back to you, regardless regardless of whether it's a business loss, a rental loss, or anything else, it's a passive loss. And that passive loss is subject to section 469. So we've seen people make the mistake of saying, oh, well, these are business losses, so you don't have to worry about that. And that's not true. You do have to worry about that. You have to worry about your material participation, or you have to have a plan around how are you going to fully utilize those passive losses that are being kicked back to you. But the ATM machine investments, self-storage investments, those are both great investments to generate passive losses. Should you let the tax tail wag the dog? No. So, you know, this is not investment advice. (laughs) This is tax advice. We're telling you how this works. Uh, Make sure that you do your own due diligence on these deals before you go and invest in them and make sure that you're actually going to make money. You know, you don't want to actually lose money. You just want to generate tax losses to help you increase your wealth or or increase that return on investment that you're, you're able to claim. Yeah. Yeah. And I just, you know, something I think just to make very clear is that in 95% of the cases, if you're investing as a limited partner, as a silent partner, and meaning you're putting money up and you're not doing much, but making just a decision to put the money up and sit back and collect your checks, it's going to be a passive activity 95% of the time, right? So that's just something to keep in mind. If a sponsor's telling you that you're going to be able to use these losses as non-passive losses, chances are they're probably not trying to be malicious. They're not probably not trying to intentionally deceive you. They just don't understand the tax consequences, or maybe they're projecting how it's going to affect them onto you. As Brennan was saying, if they're the general partner, perhaps they're non-passive for them. So it's just something to, to keep in mind. If you invest passively, that most likely the activities you're doing in are passive, except, except the one exception that I could say offhand is oil and gas investments. Working interest, there's a special carve out that makes those non-passive, even if you are passive. So that is the one circumstance that I'm aware of where uh, you could be investing passively, truly passively, and still have non-passive losses. But that's neither here nor there for the purpose of this episode. What we're trying to convey is that when you have capital gains from the sale of any passive activity and rental activities, unless you're a real estate professional, are always passive, you can use losses from other passive activities, including rental real estate to offset your gains. And that is a strategy that dozens and dozens of our clients have used over the, basically since the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act have came out in a substitute to a 1031 exchange, right? And we'll go through a 1031 exchange in another episode, but if you can use passive losses uh, and avoid a 1031 exchange, then, then you may be better off saving yourself the hassles and headaches of going through a 1031 exchange. And uh, I think that's one of the major takeaways here. Thanks for listening to today's show. If you enjoyed the show, please find us on iTunes and leave us a review. You can also email us at contact at therealestatecpa.com with any feedback or topic suggestions. We are always taking on new clients and with the new tax laws in play, you really don't want to navigate this alone. Let us help you save money on taxes and with your accounting and CFO needs. 
to become a client, navigate to our client page at therealestatecpa.com and fill out a web form with as much detail about your situation as possible. Thanks so much for listening. Have a great rest of your week.